This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Today is Tuesday. It is the 19th day of the 12th month of the year of our Lord 2023. Good morning. Mike Parrot here. I'm the host of Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio the way it should be. Always on air, always online, and always happy to be with you. I keep adding that, and I just don't even dislike it. Always happy to be with you because it's true. Broadcasting from the RTF South semi-studio today. So happy to be with you. You know, yesterday on this illustrious program, we were discussing something that got a little deep, a little philosophical, a little theoretical, and we ran out of time. Today is part two of that discussion. What precipitated it was the, the lewd and disgusting acts inside the United States Senate. I won't name them. But what I will say is that when I saw it, when I immediately saw it, my mind said to itself, does your mind talk to itself? Uh, this is a re-consecration. I got a, little, I got a little kid with me today. That's also why I'm not going to name it. I got a little girl sitting in my lap. She's so cute. She's my co-host today. Um, when I, she's a little bit sick. She may cough a couple times and you're just going to have to deal with it because some of us have to deal with it 24 seven. So you can deal with it for one hour a week. We broadcast every day, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. And you can find portions of the show on the new Christendom Daily Podcast. That's the new Christendom Daily Podcast. I love that podcast. I really do. I, I always laugh. I think the King Dude's intro to that podcast is awesome. He's like, this is one guy, and I got a microphone and blood, sweat, and tears, and you're going to listen to me. And I'm like, pumped up. I'm like, yes, I am going to listen to you, sir. All right. Um... My thesis is that this this uh, this sodomitical behavior in the nation's capital, first of all, it goes on all the time. These people go to putrid, disgusting, perverted parties all the time. Nothing new. Second of all, I don't think you can ever claim that this is a uh, profanation of a holy place in the uh, in the uh, religion of the Democrats, and I, I'm when I say Democrats right now, I'm not speaking about the uh, the Democratic Party. Speaking of people who are pro democracy, okay. Same thing when I say republicanism. Republicanism is part of the French Revolution. We were talking about the French Revolution on yesterday's episode. It took darn near the entire thing, and we're still not through it. Okay, so quick review on what we learned yesterday. I'm not going to go through it. I'm not going to reread it. I may read one quote. Basically, there has been a, re a revolution. 
And now there is somewhat of a counter-revolution, although there aren't many of us. The revolution happened like 200 years ago, and the question is, what's driving it forward today? Because it's still going forward. It's still moving forward. What is the engine that is driving it? Okay, that's sort of where we left off. We discussed two cities, a traditional distinction between the city of God and the city of man. And St. Augustine wrote, two loves built two cities. Self-love, to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. The love of God to the point of self-contempt, made the city of God. So, two loves build two cities, city of God, city of man. And then we analyze the two different conceptions of man. Okay? Two different conceptions of man. There is the human nature throughout the ages, one continuous human nature, We're all the same. We've all had the same struggles, questions, experiences, feelings, passions, hopes, dreams, distresses. Natural morality is a science based on the observation of human behavior, that human behavior is more or less the same, and therefore morality is more or less the same. Uh, We believe that man's intelligence has been obscured by original sin. In other words, sin makes you stupid. We believe that our passions intervene with with our intellect. In other words, rage makes you stupid too. But that overall, morality is objective. Then there's the revolutionary concept of man. And the revolutionary concept of man is where I had to take a huge detour yesterday. Because the revolutionary concept of man is so closely tied with the Darwinian view of of natural science. There is no real human nature because man is continually evolving through the ages towards something superior. The myth of the progress of humanity. Uh, And then the question is, what is man progressing towards? if not some divine state, if not some angelic existence. And if we are more and more angelic today than our ancestors, then the ancestors are to be despised. They're to be hated. This is another aspect of it that uh, actually is, is relevant to communism. Communism is a historyless philosophy. It has no history to it. It wants to sever your ties to your own history, make you despise your own ancestors. That's the whole, that's the goal of communism. That is its that is the desire of communism. And so how convenient. If man is progressing towards something more angelic every day, then the further back in time you go, the less angelic man is. The more what? Beastly? Base? 
And so that that man, that prior man, your grandparents' generation, is to be despised, ignored, forgotten, shunned, heck, even uh, disposed of. Because they're backwards. They're not evolved like us. They're not angels like we are. That's the revolutionary concept of man, okay? Can you see the two in your mind's eye very clearly? One is that man has a fixed nature and that the nature of man has been deformed by original sin, but it is redeemable in Christ. The revolutionary concept of man is that there's no need for God, there's no need for Christ or salvation or, or morality, really, because morality isn't even a, a fixed concept. It, it changes, it's relative to whatever angelic state, pre-angelic state we're in at the moment, all right? And then the question that I ended the broadcast with yesterday was, how can we explain this artificial and permanent movement of conversion of spirits from the city of God to the city of man. What is the engine? What is the thing that is driving the revolution forward in the absence of the revolutionaries? The actual, you know, Freemasonic revolutionaries, Robespierre, you know, beheading people. What In the absence of the guillotine and the reign of terror, what is pushing the revolution forward? There can be no doubt that it's being pushed forward. It's being pushed forward every single day. It's getting worse every day, even since I started this show here on the Crusade Channel. The revolution has moved forward. It has. It has gained ground. It has advanced. Okay, so today we're going to talk about what that what the engine of the revolution is. I don't think you're going to like the answer. To the American audience, I don't think you're going to like this answer. Uh, but that's why you listen to the show, right? You love this show. This is your favorite 10 a.m. show. There's no other show at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time that you would rather listen to on the Crusade Channel. That's because I'm the only one on the Crusade Channel at 10 a.m. It's like a captive audience. All right, here we go. My, my, little, my poor little sick daughter, she's such a trooper. She just has to be in my arms right now. And today she's going to learn about the engine of the revolution as well. You know, it might not be a bad habit for me to broadcast with a, with a, with a baby on my lap. I probably could think of more highbrow ways to say things like sodomitical senatorial uh, deviancy rather than <laughs> using, using other language that I might be tended to use. Okay, what is the engine of the revolution without further ado? Okay, physical science teaches us that motors operate using two types of quantities. A difference in potentials or poles, this is the DDP, a current or flow rate, which is through the conductor. Let's give some examples. I love this example because this is precisely the same example that the government used 40 years ago when they were talking about the quiet war on us. 
conductors and capacitors. And I just love it. I love it. Everybody's using the same examples. An electric motor works thanks to a voltage or difference in electrical uh, potentials, plus and minus poles, an electric current that passes from one pole to the other through an electric conductor. A heat engine works thanks to a difference in thermal potentials, hot source, cold source, a thermal current which passes from hot source to cold source through a thermal conductor. The water mill works thanks to a difference in altitude or difference in altitude potentials, top and bottom, a current of water that passes from top to bottom through a conductive channel. Okay, so we could therefore assume that this is the case with the revolution, which is a movement of ideas. According to this diagram, the revolutionary engine would work thanks to a difference in potentials in the order of ideas, thesis, antithesis, a current of opinions which would move from thesis to antithesis, from the city of God to the city of man. But it remains for us to to specify the DDP, the conductor of this current. Okay? What is the conductor of this current? If the current is defined as the opinions which would move from thesis to antithesis, from the city of God to the city of man. The revolutionary DTP, hatred of inequality. The revolutionary who wants to hasten the evolution of man first comes up against the inertia of human nature. To change mentalities, make society move, to create movement, the method consists of make, become aware of inequalities between people, place individuals in a mental attitude of revolt with a driving argument. Inequality is synonymous with injustice. To this end, we seek to put hatred into the differences that naturally exist between people. Differences in age, sex, social class, wisdom, wealth, knowledge, etc. Around 1840, at the dawn of the democratic systems, Tocqueville was surprised by this passion for equality. Quote, The particular and dominant fact which distinguishes these centuries is the equality of conditions. The main passion that agitates men in these times is the love of this equality. It induces as a logical consequence the rise of this individualism which is corroding our modern societies and which everyone deplores without wanting to recognize its origin. Individualism is democratic in origin and it threatens to expand as conditions become equal. This is a quote from de Tocqueville. Individualism is democratic in origin and it threatens to expand as conditions become equal. When in a traditional society natural inequalities 
are sources of exchange and wealth for everyone. In revolutionary society, they become factors of opposition, struggles, thesis, antithesis, hate, jealousy, selfishness on both sides. Deepen differences until they become unbearable. In a traditional society, let me say this again, natural inequalities are sources of exchange and wealth for everyone. But in a revolutionary society, they are struggles. Hate, jealousy, selfishness on both sides deepen. From then on, revolt breaks out and most of the time leads to an imposed and artificial equality in which the state of hatred persists. Indeed, the other is always suspected of wanting to enjoy an advantage (coughs) that one would not have oneself. And this idea is unbearable. Let us remember these terrible words of the Marxist philosopher Herbert (coughs) Mercuse, 1898-1979. Quote, There is no doubt that a revolutionary movement gives birth to a hatred without which revolution is simply not possible, without which no liberation is possible. Nothing is more revolting than the commandment of love. Do not hate your enemy in a world where hatred is institutionalized everywhere. During the revolutionary movement, this hatred can naturally turn into cruelty brutality, and terror. The limit is, in this area, terribly mobile. The three revolutionary ideologies uh, present this passion for equality. Socialism pits the deified proletarian class against the bourgeois, the, the, the bourgeois, bourgeois? Uh, so that as to result as in the global dictatorship of the proletariat where equality is supposed to reign. Nationalism pits the deified nation against other peoples. Nationalist revolutions always lead to expansionist war. The French Revolution declared war on Europe. The same goes for the revolutions of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy. Within the nation, a particular Equality reigns. Uniformity. Minorities and regional identities are ruthlessly fought because they are considered as divisive factors. Liberalism pits individual gods against each other. Each person is absolutely free. Individualism triumphs. The other is the one who limits our freedom. We must therefore free ourselves from our natural authority which our selfishness can make odious. Artificial conflicts are thus created between man and woman, parent and child, teacher and student, priest and faithful, boss and worker. When we lose sight of the idea of the common good, hierarchy is no longer justified, which leads to the demand for absolute equality. The conductor of the revolutionary current This is where I finally revealed to you the whole purpose of bringing all of this up. The fact that there is sodomy in the Senate chambers, in my view, is merely a reconsecration of the anti-religion. 
It is a reconsecration of the so-called temple of democracy. And here is why. Because the conductor of the revolutionary current, the conductor of it, universal suffrage. Let me read this to you. Let me just read this to you. Before you turn the radio off, before you say, what? Is he telling us that he's against voting? Before you just, in disgust, flip the channel to something else, consider the following. Experience shows that establishing the city of God, or uh, the city of man, is a too obvious, too brutal, or too authoritarian manner results in a breakdown of the current of conversion of minds to the revolution. Failure of the convention in its attempt to impose the cult of the goddess reason. (coughs) Failure of socialist revolutions with their specific materialism. Failure of nationalist revolutions when the war turns to their disadvantage. Liberal democracy, because it carries out its reforms gently, proves to be a much more efficient revolutionary engine than nationalist and socialist ideologues. In order not to frighten public opinion and to achieve equality and freedom, it attacks the natural order in small steps. For example, divorce, abortion, marriage of the unnaturals, euthanasia, infanticide will not be legalized at the same time, but little by little. To ward off any dispute, thanks to universal suffrage, it lets people believe that they themselves wanted these changes. To do this, it is enough to work on public opinion with major media campaigns by arousing DDP, then to invoke the myths of the general will, the meaning of history, the progress of humanity, to divert attention from the real issue, the city of man against the city of God. She creates an artificial opposition, the right-left DDP, in which she occupies the central place, that of the arbiter, the place and places its competing ideologies, socialism and nationalism, <laughs> as well as the bastard forms, social democracy, liberal nationalism, national socialism, because of their apparent oppositions, we forget that these ideolo- ideologies all have the man-god as their, uh, as their final goal. And the city of God loses its fighters in electoral battles that do not concern them. Thus, liberal democracy, thanks to universal suffrage and the right-left DDP, maintains a permanent current of conversion of minds to the revolution. And the engine runs, and the engine runs, and the engine runs. Still not convinced? That's fine. Don't go anywhere. Because I'm about to read to you the terrible trap of universal suffrage. The terrible trap of universal suffrage. This segment, by the way, brought to you by the Merry Manly Christmas Giveaway. Go to crusadechannel.com slash Mary to sign up. You can have the opportunity to win $50 for the Founders Trading Post or one of the six grand prizes. You just have to listen to the program, and I would suggest you continue listening, not just for the giveaway option, but also for the, 
Well, the enrichment, the intellectual enrichment, uh, as we delve into the terrible trap of universal suffrage here together. Is liberal democracy a religion? I, I've already contended that it is. I've already told you that it is. I've already told you that they had to reconsecrate their temple of democracy. They refer to their own voting house as a temple of democracy. They refer to their own institution in religious and sacramental terms. The superiority of liberal democracy over its two competing ideologies is due to the fact that its purpose, the city of man-god, is realized in its very functioning. By universal suffrage, regardless of age, competence, wisdom, every individual is called upon to decide on the destiny of the city by electing men he does not know who represent ideologies about which he knows nothing. By referendum, he has asked for his opinion on what concerns natural morality, abortion, euthanasia, etc., or to decide the fate of what does not belong to him, such as the disappearance of the country in Europe. No moral reference is recognized a priori. No natural order serves as a point of reference. As a good disciple of the Greek Democrat and sophist Protagoras, the voter ends up thinking that, quote, man is the measure of all things. The voter thinks that man is the measure of all things. Voting makes you think that you are the measure of all things. Little by little, and without his knowledge, through the very practice of voting, he accustoms himself to the idea that he himself is the source of truth, that he can decide what is the good and the bad. Now, does not this privilege belong to the author of all things, to God himself? In fact, objectively, the voter replaces God. He is the God-man. Let us remember the fall of Adam. Quote, the serpent replied, In the day that you eat of it, of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who knows good and evil. And the Freemason... Oswald Wirth congratulated himself thus, quote, The seductive snake symbolizes a particular instinct whose specificity is to make the individual feel the need to rise in the scale of beings. This secret spur is the promoter of all progress. The original sin was the sin of pride of man who wanted to be master of good and evil who refused his human nature. Ascribing to oneself a skill that one does not possess isn't that the very definition of presumption, of pride. Each time he votes for or against something that does not fall within his competence, the citizen therefore commits an act of pride. In this way, each voter constitutes a stone of pride which serves to build a gigantic tower of pride. Universal democracy, the tower of Babel, the tower of the man-god. All this under the watchful eye of the great artisan of the revolt, the first who said, Non servium, I will not serve. Would democracy, therefore, be identified with the religion of man? Like a religion, 
Hasn't liberal democracy, its dogma, the dogma of the general will as the source of power, like J.M. Le Pen, does, does, she, does she not proclaim, quote, since power is no longer based on God, but in principle, it is he who must be the subject of all our considerations. It's credo, the universal declaration of human rights. It's sacraments, the high mass of universal suffrage. Augustin Cochin, 1876 to 1916, does not express himself otherwise when commenting on Rousseau's social contract. Quote, We would be lost, says Christianity, without help from above, were we not capable of saving ourselves alone. And likewise, Jean-Jacques, we are incapable of extracting from ourselves the general will and following it. We need the external help of the law, grace, the effects of the vote, sacrament, which creates the new man in us. Thus, the social contract is not a treatise on politics, it is a treatise on theology. The theology of an extra-natural will created in the heart of the natural man, substituted in him for his actual will by the mystery of the law accomplished within the contractual or voluntary or thought society under the sensitive species of the sacrament of the vote. You may have thought of an objection already if you're listening to this broadcast. You may have, you petty foggers out there, you're probably already in the Crusader live chat. You're in the stadium right now and you're, you're pettifogging and you're pointing out what you believe to be such an obvious objection and you can't believe that I haven't answered it already in the broadcast. I have your objection here and I am going to present it in, in its fairness and then I'm going to answer it. But that happens after the break. The objection, by the way, is called the suicide solution. The Catholic party. Why don't we just have a Catholic party? Why don't we just vote for Catholics? Why don't we run Catholic candidates? Why don't we do all the campaigning and lobbying and sloganeering? I will answer this question in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I just met you. Heard you're a groomer. So here's your millstone. Good luck, loser. It's hard to look right when you're a pervert. So take your millstone. No kids will get hurt. Gotta get these fools into the bottom of the ocean Down in the ocean Alongside that titan sub Gotta get these guys down to the bottom of the ocean Throw them in the ocean With that titanic sub Welcome back to the show, Mike Parrott here I'm the humble host of Parrot Talk Here on the Crusade Channel, live talk radio the way it should be We are always on air, always online, and always happy to be with you We broadcast every single day, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time Today we are in RTF South, an undisclosed 
non-specified, non-American, Latin American country. And by the way, I'm going to bring you some cultural notes from this place uh, as I can kind of put them together. I'm living through it right now, making real-time observations about the differences in, uh, in the types of people who live here, as well as there's so many people who travel here. I have heard French, German, Dutch, Russian, Ukrainian, of course, Chinese, um, whatever it is that the Indians speak, Hindi. I've, I've heard all those languages in the last 48 hours. In addition, of course, to Spanish and Portuguese. All right. Um, where were we? We have been talking about the French Revolution. And I know you're like, hey, that's so 200 years ago. What gives? Well, you know, if you spent the weekend like I did, unable to escape the smut that happened in the United States Capitol over the weekend, (laughs) then I, you know, I'm just, I'm just so tired of it all. I wanted to give you this exposition so that I can finally get to uh, (laughs) the point, which I'll get to maybe today or possibly tomorrow. But I have been describing to you in the last segment what is driving the French Revolution forward. The revolution in general. There, there has to be some artificial motor to it. And this is a pretty good explanation that I've found. That the motor to it is the, the, the need for equality. Inequality of any kind, racial inequality, socioeconomic inequality, familial inequality, inequality between the sexes, inequality of any kind is the raw energy. And what's the conduit? How do you get from point A to point B? How do you get from positive charge to negative charge? Between the polarities, how do you get the potential energy moved? What is the physical conduit of it? Well, it's you. It's all of you. It's just like the matrix. Each one of you is individually powering this thing. How? No, not, not because you're trapped inside of some surreality. Well, maybe you are. Not necessarily that your actual physical life force, the electricity of your body is being harnessed. I don't know, maybe you are. But in proposing yourself as the judge, jury, and executioner of all things in society, of you intervening between God ruling a society and its legitimate rulers, of you stepping forward and saying, here I am to cast my vote. Here I am to make my opinion heard. Here I am to cement my desires into codified law. That, ladies and gentlemen, seems to be the conduit between the raw energy of equality 
and the continuation of a 200-plus-year revolution. But you say, what about the Catholic Party? Why can't we have a Catholic Party? The temptation is sometimes great to want to take democracy into its own trap, to continue a Catholic poll, and to fight against the revolution with its own weapons. Campaigns, lobbying, slogans, elections, petitions, etc. History shows us, however, that no attempt has ever succeeded, even under favorable conditions. Let us remember this disastrous affair of the rally of the church to the Republic in 1892. France at that time was overwhelmingly Catholic, and yet the country was led by three violently anti-Christian republic, the Third Republic. The Catholic elite is monarchist. Also, Pope Leo XIII made the following calculation. The church is not dependent on any type of government, monarchy, aristocracy, republic. So if we morally oblige Catholics to vote, it is mathematical that their elected representatives will be the majority and the republic will become Christian. As a result, after the rally, all catechisms making voting a Christian duty. Okay? Pope Leo XIII, not a bad guy. Gave us the St. Michael prayer. Gave us uh, Rerum Navarum. Gave us the beginning of, of Catholic social teaching, okay, which was perfected later on by the Piuses, uh, most, most distinctly in quadragesimal, quadragesimal anno, okay, 40 years after. So Pope Leo is making the following calculation. France is overwhelmingly Catholic. The elite are, uh, are monarchists. So if I compel the French to vote, then this evil Third Republic will become Catholic. Okay? We know the rest. In 1893, the number of Catholic deputies increased to 200. Six months later, it fell to 97. No ministry was granted to the rallies, and the anti-religious laws resumed with a vengeance. We know that in this way, an interior transformation will take place in souls in the manner of that produced by the right. <coughs> this is a praxis. Secondly, like Leo XIII, it would be dangerous to consider democracy only as a mode of government. It's not just a mode of government. Like a mode of transportation. Oh, how'd you get here? Did you take a bus? Did you take a plane? Did you take a train? Did you take a, did you take a boat? No, 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 no. I took a religion to get here. That's the, that's, the, that's the difference. We have seen that it is essentially a religion, that it is of the God-man. Let us understand that the revolutionary does not care who we vote for as long as we vote. The revolutionary does not care for whom you cast your ballot so long as you indeed cast a ballot. The important thing is to practice. Firstly, creating a Christian party, which uses the rules of the game of the democratic system, 
renders to the latter the imminent service of bringing contradiction, of creating a new DP. This creates new possibilities for the movement of ideas. The universal suffrage practice by Christians, then, perfectly fulfills its role as conductor of the current of conversion of minds to the revolution. What are the reasons for this disaster? Why did the Catholic Party, supported by the Pope, with an overwhelming balance of power, fail? In light of the previous study, we will have to give two related answers. Again, I know, I get proof texted but with this all the time. The pettifoggers show up and they say, well, Pope Leo XIII says that voting is, is necessary. Yes, the reason that came into the French catechisms in the 1800s was for this particular reason. And look how disastrous it was. Catholics in France have become a minority. The Catholic Party has disappeared into thin air, and we find deputies who claim to be Christians in all parties of the political spectrum. They espouse their respective ideologies. France is still revolutionary. More than a century later, the results are overwhelming. By universal suffrage... The member of the Catholic Party is led to adopt the mental attitude of the revolutionary who has no other master than himself. He practices the revolutionary act while claiming to fight against the revolution. So unbeknownst to him, he acts like a god, like a god man. And if this schizophrenia does not make him lose his faith, the risks are much greater for his children. Let us never forget that we always end up thinking as we act. And this is where the extraordinary importance of religious ritual lies. Aren't the following two examples significant? Welcoming the record participation rate in the referendum on the Maastricht Treaty, even though the yes vote had only won a tiny 51%. The announcement on the front page... A great victory for democracy. In the Couture de Olest, dated January 8th, 1988, the Grand Master of the Grand Orient, Jean-Robert Ragache, titled his article thus, quote, Only one word for the presidential election, vote. Let's translate. It doesn't matter if you vote right or left, or even far right. We just want you to vote. How do we stop this revolutionary engine? How do we stop it? First, we have to tell the truth and denounce the imposture of the God-man. It is it is important to restore things to their rightful place. We must recognize that our condition as creatures, and we are entirely dependent on God. We must accept our nature as men, political animals, and try to act in accordance with what it requires. This is the condition for achieving maximum happiness in this world and eternal happiness in the next. To this end, our ideal must be respect for the Ten Commandments. 
which are summary of natural law, and for God's commandments of love and of the next one. Secondly, we must denounce this deception which makes man the master of good and evil. In the city of God, because of original sin, there are always faults against our nature, and therefore against the commandments of God, but they are recognized as such and regretted. In the revolutionary city, in order to give free reign to his disordered passions and to clear his conscience, man decides that there is no more sin. He is both judge and party. Its morality is subjective, tailor-made, and no longer objective. (laughs) Now, the greatest sin is not so much to go against a law of God, but to say that law does not exist. Because from there, everything is permitted. Third, we must say that the truth, loud and clear, that's what I'm doing here today, without concession. The truth is, one, we cannot take it and leave it as we please. We are not masters of it. In the democratic game, quote, you have to get together if you want to make your voice heard, end quote. So the Christian joins the party whose ideology he judges to be the most acceptable. In order not to offend his new friends, he is led to make concessions to silence certain points of doctrine, which are not in keeping with his times. Besides, he ends up forgetting these embarrassing details. It is remarkable that all parties have Catholics among their members, but none displays the doctrine of Christ the King in his program. Christ the King. We infer that, th- that these committed Christians are ashamed of part of the revealed truth that they have censored it. By this means, they make themselves masters of the truth. They know better than our Lord what is good for us. They have therefore become God-men. Regarding this temptation to profess only a watered-down doctrinal, Cardinal Pius, 1815-1880, to declared, with half Christianity, we will save nothing. Half means and half remedies are no longer effective. And I declare with a minimum of religion, public salvation has become impossible. To be frankly, fully Christian in belief as in practice, affirming all the doctrinal law as well as all the moral law, it is necessary but this necessary will be effective. Next step, to reduce DDP, put love in differences. If our duty, re- if our duty requires remaining uncompromising with principles, it also includes being lenient with people and accepting the natural inequalities that come from what we are limited. We all have faults, infirmities. Different experiences, skills, backgrounds. The gospel tells us, blessed are the peacemakers. Thus, it is love of neighbor that gives us happiness, prosperity, and wealth to society. Contrary to what liberal Christians claim, Jesus Christ never came to abolish inequalities. He asserts his royal and his hierarchical superiority while setting an example to follow. In the evening of our life, for we are diminished as adults because we don't have all the skills in childhood and adolescence for our education. 
Unlike the revolutionary in the, and in accordance with uh, Christ's command, the Christian will put love into natural differences and ease social tensions. It is not a question of making natural inequalities disappear, and this precisely because they are in our nature. Indeed, it is thanks to these inequalities that social life is possible. Throughout our lives, don't we need each other? If I, the Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also must wash another's feet. The duty of the Christian is therefore to serve his brothers in the love of Christ, each at his own level. In this way, he works for the common good. He tries for everyone to lead a virtuous life in the unity of peace. He thus realizes the city of God. Next, to dry up the current of conversion of minds to the revolution. It simply says, stop voting. For 200 years, the fighters of the city of God have exhausted themselves in democratic battles and their numbers have continued to decrease. We analyze the reason. The rules of the democratic game are rigged. They are the machine to lose Christians. You thought that the election in 2020 was rigged because your candidate didn't win. I tell you that it's rigged because the more you vote, the more you will lose your soul. That's the true rigging of the game. You thought that 2024 is going to be rigged because Biden may (coughs) still win from the basement. Excuse me. Or that Nikki Haley may somehow steal the nomination from your candidate. I say to you, it is rigged because you believe that you should have a say. And you make yourself into the man God, the judge and the jury and the party to the case. The practice of voting without the required skills constitutes an act of pride, which results in a usurpation of the place of God and the acceptance of ideologies. To vote is to recognize the rules of the game, the law of numbers. (coughs) It is to give credence to the myth of the general will. It is accepting the validity of the crowd's condemnation of Christ. Did not the just, the Gentile, the innocent die by plebiscide, by democratic pleasure, because God was not up to the miserable ambitions of the priests and Pharisees? What is despicable is not only the result of the popular choice, God's condemnation, but mainly the fact that this choice was granted to the people. This is also where the crime of the very liberal pilot lies. But nowadays, aren't we facing the same situation? For example, when a country organizes a referendum on abortion, this is what we hear amongst Catholics aware of the monstrous nature of this electoral uh, consultation. I know that voting in this situation is inherently bad, but if we can save lives, result definitely, definitely way the yes will be voted Otherwise, the revolution 
will repeat the operation until the yes is obtained and it will be definitive because we do not stop the meaning of history in our Catholic lament and raise our arms. This reactionary attitude is irresponsible because it is not against abortion that we must fight. It is against the political institutions which allow such choices to be possible. Let me say this again, because sometimes, you know, I am critical of the pro-life movement, the pro-life movement. Pro-lifeism isn't a religion. Worshiping infants is not a religion. It is the litmus test for the bogus ordo religion. It is the litmus test for the Protestant religion. <coughs> but it is not in itself worshiping God. It's worshiping a creature. I don't know who wrote this French article, but this Frenchman says the following. It is not against abortion that we must fight. It is against the political institutions which allow such choices to even be possible. That's the real fight, ladies and gentlemen. That's the real fight. You know, even Abby Johnson gets up and says, I don't want to make abortion illegal. I want to make it unthinkable. Well, you can't make it unthinkable in a democracy. You can't make it unthinkable in the USSA as we are currently structured. The reconstruction of the city of God requires, first of all, the preservation of its fighters. Then by the weakening of the city of the God-man, therefore by the refusal of the rules of the democratic game. This is the meaning of his declaration by Pope Pius the ninth, 1791 to 1878, to French pilgrims in, 17, in 1874, four years prior to his death. Blessed Pope Pius the ninth says the following. I bless all those who cooperate in the resurrection of France. I bless them with the aim, let me tell you, of seeing them take on a very difficult but very necessary work that which consists of making disappear or diminish a horrible plague which afflicts society, contemporary, and which is called universal suffrage, to hand over the decision of the most serious questions to the necessarily unintelligent and passionate crowds. Is this not surrendering to chance and voluntary running into the abyss? Yes, Universal suffrage would rather deserve the name of universal madness. And when secret society sees it, as happens too often, that of universal lie. Let me just ask you, which of the two we have in the United States of America? Do we have universal madness or do we have universal lie? Universal madness, where the crowds have gone wild and they exert their emotional power over all of us? Or is it universal lie, where the secret societies have taken control of the powers of government and we only have the mere mirage of participation? The civic duty of Christians is therefore not to vote but to work with all his strength to promote a political institution that respects natural law. This is also that advocated by King Henry V, 
Count of Chambord, 1820 to 1883. Quote, it's a long quote. There are positions where one must resign himself to suffering some inconveniences in order to avoid even greater ones, and knowing how to sacrifice what he may appear to be the utility of the moment for permanent and true utility. Let us have faith in our doctrines, in our traditions. Moral sentiment is our condition of existence and our strength. Let us not abdicate it. This is what makes us valuable in the eyes of our country. And this is what will bring the country back to us when it is restored to freedom and to itself. As I understand it, abstention is not a lack of affirmation, on the contrary, it is an affirmation and a striking protest. It is asserting oneself. It is protesting to say to those in power, the royalists do not want to lend themselves to your lies. They don't want to appear to take your so-called institutions seriously. They do not want, by accepting a too unequal struggle to add the appearance of a defeated opposition to your easy triumph. Believe it, when the time comes, today's abstention will become, for the royalists, one more title and recommendation in front of the fellow citizens. Believe me, it costs me to divert the royalists from elective functions and public life for a time. But I am convinced... Incessant protest through public abstention, such as the true mission of the royalists, under a monstrous regime which seems to willingly contradict the instincts and needs of France, which replaces moral sentiment with cynicism, freedom through electoral intimidation, the fruitful realities of representative government through the miserable simulcra of a lying constitutionalism. Ladies and gentlemen, let us stop voting and the current of conversion of minds to the revolution will dry up. The revolution will break down. The revolution will be defeated. Final section. We're running long. Let's get through it together. The fight for the city of God in France. <laughs> the natural and divine foundations of traditional France. In France, a political institution with the city of God as its ideal has already existed. It is the traditional monarchy. It is the repository of the only natural political doctrine prior to the ideologies of 1789. The constitution of ancient France was based on two principles. Legitimacy based on natural law, number one, to ensure the common good, to give happiness to men, political authority recognizes and submits itself to a law of which it is not the author, natural law or the law of human nature. The common good, which requires the unity of peace, is ideally achieved only with the government of one. St. Thomas Aquinas says... It is clear that what is one in itself can achieve unity better 
than what is composed of units. Also, the political authority is that of a king. The fact that the king is not appointed by men, but by the fundamental laws of the kingdom, to which both the people and the king must submit, avoids succession quarrels, preserves unity, and therefore the common good. Number two, a legitimacy based on divine right and revelation. If the successor designated by law is the sole king, he only acquires full authority with the coronation. Indeed, during the coronation, in front of his people, the king submits to God and swears to him to legislate according to the natural law of which God is the author. This is what we call divine right. During the coronation, the king recognizes revelation and the institution which guards its deposits, the church. It recognizes more precisely the kingship of Jesus Christ, the king of France. The coronation, therefore, confers on the king the necessary graces to govern in accordance with the laws of God and the church. Is this fight not necessary? Isn't that reasonable? Isn't it worth it? Would we prefer the illusion of a good government invented from scratch without tradition? But to what concrete Christian civilization does St. Pius Christian by Mark uh, Sanger, uh, this, this got cut off. Here's a quote, your final quote. Quote, No, venerable brothers. Let me, let me see who actually said this. If I can. Yes, St. Pius X. No, venerable brothers, it must be energetically recalled in these times of social and intellectual anarchy, where everyone poses as a doctor and a legislator. We will not build society differently than God has built it. We will not build society if the church does not lay the foundations and direct the work. No, civilization no longer needs to be invented, nor the new city to be built in the clouds. She was, she is, it is Christian civilization, it is the Catholic city, it is only a question of establishing and constantly restoring in it on its natural and divine foundations against the ever-resurgent attacks of unhealthy utopia, revolt, and impiety. Omnia establishes increased Hey, what? Your Catholic youth are inspired and distrust towards the church, their mother. They are taught that the great bishops and the great monarchs who created and so gloriously governed France did not know how to give the people neither true justice nor true happiness because they did not have the ideal of the, of the scion. What unbuilt Catholic city in the clouds does the Holy Pope evoke when he addresses our country, if not that of traditional monarchy? That's Pope Pius X. Okay, we have heard a lot today. 
This episode has gone long. I wanted to get through this incredible article. Maybe we can unpack it uh, tomorrow. Maybe we can we can uh, draw some more conclusions, some fruit, as it were, from it. But you have now been blackpilled on democracy. Democracy is not merely a form of government amongst other competing form of governments. It is a religion. And passing through it changes the soul. Participating in it, passing through it, going through her liturgies, experiencing her sacraments, changes the soul. To the pettifoggers who will continue to point out, but, 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 Pope Leo the Thirteenth, he, he says you must vote. And I'm going to vote, I must vote for the lesser of two evils. I must vote for the lesser of two evils, or else we'll get the worst of the two evils. Your vote doesn't matter. I mean, we know this more now today than we've ever known. Your vote doesn't matter. Your vote doesn't count. They just want you to vote. They want you to think that your vote matters. They want you invested in this sham. They want you personally linked to the disgusting, perverted, sodomitical acts of reconsecration of their hideous temple of democracy. They want you to pinch the incense in the temple of democracy. Don't pinch the incense. Don't give it to them. You may ask, and maybe you don't ask this, how is it that Mike takes such pleasure in critiquing and observing American politics? Because that's the extent of my participation. Critiquing it, observing it, mocking it. It's a charade. And it's so much easier for me to see it as an outsider as an outsider from it. May we be an outsider from the Freemasonic trap that they have set for us. And may we preserve ourselves for the struggle of enshrining Christ the King as the next phase of our society. Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's not President of Presidents. So let's get to it, Catholics. Thank you for listening. Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. See you tomorrow. RestoringTheFaith.com You're the best. Thanks for hanging in with me. Hope you love the show. God bless you.